0: Welcome to Patrick Henry's Red Hill. Uh, This is the last home and the burial spot of uh, the American patriot, the founding father, Patrick Henry. And uh, we start off in the orientation room. And the first thing that I'm going to bring to your attention is a map of Virginia. Now, before we get to this map of Virginia, I want to read to you a quote by Samuel Meredith. Samuel Meredith was um, a childhood friend of Patrick's and uh, he grew up to be Patrick's brother-in-law. He married um, Patrick's sister, uh, Jane Henry, and um, probably was the person who knew Patrick Henry longer than anybody knew Patrick Henry. Samuel Meredith said of Patrick Henry, he regarded as nothing the trouble of moving and would change his dwelling with as little concern as a common man would change a coat of which he was tired. Patrick Henry lived in 13 different places uh, throughout his life, 13. Um, He was born and raised over in Hanover County. Uh, The first several places that he lived were over in Hanover County. Uh, Then he became the governor of Virginia. Then he bought a place out in uh, Henry County, which is in the western part of the state. Um, then he was elected governor again, and he was in Richmond, then he moved to Prince Edward County, um, then, uh, ultimately came out to Campbell County, where he lived at Long Island, and then moved to, um, Red Hill, where he spent the last couple years of his life, the last few years of his life. He purchased Red Hill in 1794. and. Um, moved his family here full-time in 1796 then of course he died in 1799. So um, in a 63-year life uh, he didn't live at Red Hill very long but it is indeed one of the 13 places that he called home. The next thing that we're going to look at is the family tree here at Red Hill. The family tree um, shows Patrick's ancestors going back to his grandparents Um, It shows his grandfather as being named Alexander Henry. Uh, Evidence has has come up though, that indicates his name was Patrick. So Patrick is at least the third generation. Uh, Our Patrick Henry is at least the third generation because Patrick's grandfather was um, uh, Patrick. Patrick had an uncle named Patrick, the Reverend Patrick Henry, and then of course Patrick Henry. And yes, Patrick Henry did have a Patrick Junior. So the name has been passed uh, down several generations, and it goes back to to Patrick Henry's grandfather. Um, The the genealogy chart chart also shows uh, Sarah Shelton, who was his first wife, and Dorothea Dandridge, who was his second wife with Sarah. Um, Patrick uh, Patrick and Sarah had six children. Uh, she passed away, unfortunately. She um, basically had a breakdown, a mental breakdown, and things uh, went very bad for her. And uh, she passed away in um, the spring or late winter of 1775, probably just weeks prior to Patrick Henry giving the liberty or death speech. Um, Then Patrick remarried Dorothea Dandridge, and together they had 11 children. And so the chart chart shows shows the big picture of the family, lists all the kids, um, and lists all the grandchildren of Patrick and Sarah and Patrick and Dorothea. Um, So that's an interesting thing that visitors here to Red Hill can can see. In the front of the orientation room, uh, we have a display called The Life and Times of Patrick Henry. And um, typically when I do a tour of Red Hill, I don't go into the details of that because we also show a movie um, to every visitor that comes to Red Hill that explains the life and times of, of Patrick Henry. So we'll watch the movie. And then, of course, if there are any questions afterwards, uh, more than welcome to, uh, to entertain those questions and answer them to the best of our abilities. Uh, After the movie, um, we turn our attention to Red Hill. Um, On the wall in the orientation room, we've got pictures of the different versions of Red Hill. The house that Patrick Henry lived in was a very small, sometimes it's described as a cottage or a cabin. Um, But the footprint of this building was probably less than, than 600 square feet. The, the building approximately was uh, 29 feet uh, by 18 feet. So a relatively small building for such a large family, there could have been upwards of um, 11 people, 12 people that were living in that house um, at, at any given time. Um, the uh, the other pictures are different versions of the house. When Patrick Henry passed away, his son John inherited Red Hill. And in the 1830s, he did the first major expansion of the uh, of the house. He added two rooms, one on the east side, one on the west side. And then on the other side of the, uh, the, the room, the new room on the west side, he put a two-story addition. So, um, That Western room that he added, sometimes we refer to it as a hyphen or a connector room because it connected the original Henry House to the uh, two-story square entrance, the new entrance. And so that was the way that Red Hill stood uh, from the 1830s until John's granddaughter, or Patrick Henry's great-granddaughter, acquired Red Hill. Lucy Henry Harrison was a, uh, a woman. She, uh, she was one of William Wirt Henry's daughters. Um, Wirt, as he sometimes was known, or Uncle Wirt, was one of the sons of John Henry. And uh, she acquired it by purchasing her siblings' interest in Red Hill. And she moved to Red Hill in 1906, made this her home. And she expanded the house out From that initial 600 square feet to John's addition, she basically doubled John's, and um, her house ended up to be, in 1912, when her construction was complete, uh, Red Hill had a footprint of nearly 3,300 square feet. Um, It was was huge by comparison to what Patrick Henry lived in. Uh, Unfortunately, the house burned and was completely lost in 1919. Um, Visitors who come to Red Hill will see a rebuilt uh, Henry house. She never rebuilt it. She lived out the remainder of her life in the law office, the last 25 years of her life in the law office, and um, would would never rebuild it. Uh, The house that is seen today was rebuilt in the 1950s. Uh, by the Patrick Henry Memorial Foundation, and one of the benefits of, uh, of the structure that's there now, uh, one of the interesting facts, is that the gentleman who designed the 1957 structure was a Lynchburg architect by the name of Stanhope Ope Johnson. People, a lot of people who live in Lynchburg know that name, they're familiar with his work, but uh, he, it's fortunate because he was involved in Lucy's expansion back in, in, uh, in 1912. And so he had drawings and measurements and notes in regards to the original house. So we're pretty confident that the, uh, that the center portion of the house at least um, is a fair representation of the house that Patrick Henry lived in. Outside the visitor's center near the parking lot is what we refer to as the Commonwealth Courtyard and uh, the centerpiece of that is a bust a bronze bust of Patrick Henry and that is taken from the original uh, casting by William Seavers that was done back in the 1930s and it was from that plaster casting that the uh, bust that sits in the state house in Richmond was made. So um, the bust here at Red Hill and the uh, the bust at the state house in uh, in Richmond are um, in essence, cast from the same mold. Um, The bust is surrounded by several flags. Uh, The flag of the United States is on the far left, uh, followed by the flag for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, The next one over is um, the flag that flew over the Capitol building once we declared our independence from Great Britain. That's represented um, out in the courtyard. From there on, you have a series of states in seventeen seventy eight um, the uh, the land that encompassed the state of Virginia when patrick henry was um, uh, was the governor of Virginia encompassed what we know today as Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And so the states, or the flags for all of those states are located out in the courtyard as well, just so visitors can get a visual representation of the size of the state of Virginia when Patrick Henry was its first governor. Patrick Henry purchased Red Hill in 1794 from a gentleman named Richard Moreau Booker. Um, Booker had owned the property for many years. He actually had inherited it from his father, uh, Richard Booker Sr. Um, The buildings that are on the property that were originally on on the Red Hill property when Patrick Henry purchased it uh, are believed to have been built in the 1770s, so around the time of the American Revolution. Uh, Patrick purchased the uh, original portion, which consisted of about 700 acres in 1794. And then just five years later, when Patrick Henry died in 1799, uh, there were approximately 2,950 acres to Red Hill. So Red Hill had expanded from 700 to nearly 3,000 acres um, in the time in the short time that Patrick Henry owned it that's a great example of one of the ways that Patrick Henry made his wealth. He bought and sold land. Um, that was a, a big money making venture for for Patrick Henry. He speculated in land he did own a couple of plantations other than Red Hill at the time of his death um, but he owned a lot of speculation land as well. Visitors, when they're approaching the house, uh, uh, the Henry house today, they pass um, through a, uh, a, a channel or a, a series of boxwoods, and those boxwoods actually date back uh, to the 1800s. Patrick Henry's son, his youngest surviving son, was John Henry. John was only about three years old when Patrick passed away in 1799, and uh, he would grow up to, um, to marry a woman by the name of um, Elvira McClellan Henry, who was from uh, Lynchburg. And um, she was very much into planting and beautification of Red Hill. And she's the one who had the, uh, the boxwood row um, planted on the north side of, of the house. Here we have the house of Red Hill. Um, as I said earlier, earlier, the original house was built by Richard Moreau Booker probably in the 1770s. We don't know the exact time frame of when the dwelling was built. Um, but the house that visitors see today is actually a little bit larger than the house that Patrick lived in. Um, when you're looking at the house, you remove the east room and you remove the west room and you're left with the center section and in essence that was the house that Patrick Henry lived in um, with nearly a dozen people um, between his, uh, his own kids. Then he also had a nephew who was living here as well. His name was Johnny Christian. His sister, his sister Anne had passed away uh, and her husband had passed away years earlier. And uh, when Anne passed away, Johnny Christian came to live with the, uh, with the Henry family. And so uh, he was counted among those who was living here uh, basically as a Henry child. Um, and then with Patrick and Dorothea, you had uh, about 11 people is what I calculate uh, living in the house. When visitors go into the house, the uh, room on the right, which again was not here when Patrick was here, has a lot of uh, dishware that is associated with the Henry family. Not necessarily from Patrick himself, but from other family members that have been passed down through the generations. For instance, there's a, uh, a set of china that w- that belonged to uh, Margaret and Henry Miller. That china was, that's a granddaughter of Patrick Henry, and that uh, china was given to uh, her by her husband as a wedding gift. Um, There's some china in there that belonged to um, a family, uh, a descendant of Patrick Henry, but they purchased this china that once belonged to Flora MacDonald. Now, a lot of people don't know who Flora MacDonald is, but she was a um, kind of an an important person who who played an interesting role in Scottish history. and. People can either look that up or they can come to Red Hill and we can tell them that story. But Flora MacDonald China is kind of interesting. Um, There are some other pieces that are in a uh, in a cabinet, some that belong to Patrick Henry, some that belong to, uh, there's a silver set that belonged to um, Patrick Henry's grandson, William Wirt Henry. And then there's also a display um, that introduces enslaved life here at Red Hill. There's a picture of a gentleman by the name of Harry Pinnell. And in this picture that was taken um, in 1950, Harry is about 102 years old. He was born and enslaved here during John's time, um, but then then worked here as a a free man as well. Um, His wife was uh, believed to be Matilda Pinnell, And Matilda died in the 1920s Um, and she actually has the distinction of being the only grave down on Quarter Place that has a a gravestone that is marked with a person's name. All the other graves just have a large rock at the head, a small rock at the foot, um, and in most cases a big divot in the middle where things have decomposed and collapsed. Um, but Matilda was, uh, was buried and, uh, and given a proper headstone uh, that is um, that's engraved with her name and the date of her death, uh, which is kind of unique. Um, so Harry's picture is up there. Uh, there's also a picture of a, of a gentleman by the name of George Ed Britton. And uh, George Ed was, um, he passed away in the 1970s living in Brookneal, uh, just a few miles from, from Red Hill. But uh, as a young man, as a, as a teenager, I believe, um, in February of 1919, he was working cattle in the, in the low grounds uh, when he noticed smoke and fire coming from the house. And so he is the one that sounded the alarm and um, uh, rose people's attention to the fact that Red Hill was on fire and was being destroyed. Uh, they were able to get some things out of the house, um, but the house itself was a complete loss. And visitors can see a set of uh, cordials of glassware that was given to George Ed by Lucy just um, out of appreciation for. Um, him uh, sounding that alarm and giving them a little bit of extra time to get some things out of uh, out of the house before everything was completely destroyed. In the center section of the Henry House uh, was the main living quarters for the family. As we said, it was a, a large family that was living in a relatively small space. Um, but unlike today, uh, they probably spent most of their time outside. They didn't spend they weren't inside watching TV or watching Netflix or football games or Xbox or Nintendo or whatever people play. Um, they, were, they were outside most of the time. And um, people uh, remember that he was born over in Hanover County. And when he was born and raised in the 1730s and 40s over in Hanover, it was still pretty much frontier land. And so he grew up being an outdoorsman, being an outdoors kind of a guy. He had the influence of an uncle on his mother's side, um, Langaloo, who, uh, or William was his proper name, uh, Winston, William Winston, but he went by the nickname Langaloo. And um, he was an outdoorsman who would spend weeks and weeks at a time uh, living in the woods with the Indians, with the Native Americans. Uh, in that part of Virginia. And so Patrick Henry grew up outside, loving the outdoors, and, and I think that he encouraged that in his, uh, in his kids as well. And so when you're in the main house, yeah, it seems kind of crowded, but uh, this is the space that he had to work with. We don't know exactly how things were laid out, but visitors in the, um, um, in the Henry House will see um, period pieces, a mixture of period pieces, uh, reproductions, and there are a few Henry pieces in there as well. And um, these are all based on the inventory that was taken after his death uh, that listed basically all of his uh, possessions. For instance, we know that he had a four-posted bed with curtains, We know that um, he had uh, a pianoforte. The pianoforte that's there is not a Henry piece, but it is a period piece. We know that Dorothea played the piano. And so this is something similar that would have been here in Patrick Henry's time. Um, A reproduction of the chair that he was sitting in when he died is in that room as well. And um, oftentimes, when I have the opportunity, Uh, I share the story of Patrick Henry's death, um, but when visitors see the orientation movie, they see a dramatic um, representation of the death of Patrick Henry uh, with the illness that he um, was suffering from. And uh, this blocked intestines is in essence what it was. And his doctor gave him a last ditch effort, a final resort. This is either gonna help you or it's not. Uh, and that was a bottle of liquid mercury, and the hope was that was going to push that blockage through, um, and maybe provide him some relief. But uh, I think the doctor knew that mortification had already set in; the body was already poisoning itself, and um, he was he was pretty much starting to shut down. I think, mm. and um, this just kind of sped things along, but. Dr. Cabell was his physician. He was a brilliant physician. He was trained in Pennsylvania. He was trained in Scotland. Uh, He went on to have an incredibly uh, successful and brilliant medical career. Uh, It was not murder. It was not assisted suicide. It wasn't anything nefarious, nothing, nothing. He didn't do anything wrong. Um, He followed all the proper procedures. And the hope was that this was gonna give him a little bit of relief. Um, so the chair that he was sitting in, uh, was sold from Red Hill. Lucy sold it in 1910 at an auction, um, but, uh, it is preserved. We know where it is, um, but the chair that is, uh, in the Henry house, and there's also another one that's in the, uh, museum. That um, are reproductions of the chair that he was sitting in when he died. It has a unique shape to it, and it was said that he was very comfortable sitting in that chair as opposed to laying down in his bed. Uh, The last room that we visit in the Henry House is uh, entitled Children of the Patriot, and it's on the west or on the east side of the house, and it's a room that was added by John um, more than 30 years after Patrick passed away. And in this room, there are several panels on the wall and each of the panels um, uh, shares facts about the 17 children of Patrick and his two wives. Um, Again, Patrick married Sarah Shelton first, together they had six children, then she passed away. Uh, Then Patrick married Dorothea Dandridge, together they would have 11 children, and then she passed away. So Children of the Patriot um, talks about the large family that lived here at Red Hill. Food preparation was a little bit different in Patrick Henry's time than in our time today. Uh, When um, somebody walks into the open hearth kitchen here at Red Hill, the first thing that they notice is that they had to go into a different building. The kitchen is physically detached from the main Henry house. This was done for several reasons, because of smoke, because of fire, keeping fire away from the main house, Um, the smell that might be associated with cooking food, um, the heat, the excessive heat um, that might be uh, coming from the kitchen, especially on warm summer days. Um, we don't know who the cook was here at Red Hill. Um, it has been suggested, suggested that uh, possibly her name was Critty. Uh, Critty was a woman who lived here. She had three children, uh, Harrison, Jack White, and Coleman. Um, they would have lived actually in the kitchen itself, uh, possibly upstairs in a, in a loft area. Um, the kitchen is modeled after a, uh, after a typical kitchen um, in that time period, um, but it is not really a reproduction of Patrick Henry's kitchen because we don't know what his kitchen looked like. Um, it had already been torn down by the time that archaeological work was, uh, was being done here and buildings were being reconstructed. Uh, they had kind of some artifacts to work from, some archaeological evidence to work from, but uh, this is kind of Stanhope Johnson's, the architect's um, idea of what the kitchen might have looked like. Um, Critty would have been one of the hardest working people here at Red Hill. She would have risen early in the morning to start to prepare meals and worked late into night into the night, um, cleaning up and possibly preparing for the next day. Um, she would have met with Dorothea periodically to find out um, what family members are going to be here, who might not be here, are there any guests or anything like that coming through? In other words, how many people am I cooking for? And. Um, she had a lot to choose from, uh, Critty did, because uh, Red Hill was pretty much a self-sustaining plantation. They had everything that they needed right here, uh, from fruits and vegetables, to meat, to cattle, to hogs, chickens. Uh, they had everything they need to prepare meals right here. and. Um, She would have met with Critty periodically just to find out menu items and requests and things like that. Um, Dorothea probably would have been the one to keep valuable spices uh, in the main house, and then she would kind of dole them out to Critty as she needed them. Spices were something, for the most part, that had to be imported. Everything else was pretty much done here at Red Hill. Um, Things were made here at Red Hill. Uh, cooking utensils and things like that were made here at Red Hill. The food was raised here at Red Hill. And so they had pretty much everything they needed. But expensive things like imported spices, like I said, would have been kept in the main house uh, by Dorothea and then dished out as as she needed. That way she could kind of keep an eye on the inventory and know when they needed more and things like that. so the kitchen was definitely a hub of the, uh, of the, um, of the area where the Henry family lived. And um, possibly it was Critty who was a very important part of that, uh, of, of that life here at Red Hill. So we talked about Critty and how she may have been the cook at Red Hill. Again, we don't know that for a fact, but we do know that she had three kids. Um, she had uh, three sons named Coleman, Jack, and Harrison. We don't know their exact ages because we don't know exactly when they were born, but they know we know that they were small children at the time that Patrick died in 1799 um, because they're listed as children uh, in the inventory. And so uh, Harrison was um, basically similar in age to Patrick Henry's youngest son, John. And um, so they grew up at Red Hill. And um, when John took ownership of Red Hill, um, Harrison became his coachman. And so uh, they obviously knew each other and uh, knew each other very well. And Harrison actually outlived John Henry. Uh, John Henry died in the, in the 1860s, and Harrison kept going. Uh, William Wart Henry um, acquired Red Hill from his father, John, and um, they both died around the same time, William Wart Henry and uh, Harrison. Uh, William Wart Henry died in 1900. I don't have an exact date of Harrison's death, but it was right around that same time. So Harrison was here for Patrick Henry, for John Henry, and for William Wirt Henry. And it was said that uh, William Wirt Henry gave Harrison uh, his cabin in recognition and in appreciation of the several years and several generations that Harrison served the Henry family. And so the Coachman's cabin, was put in its location where it is today back in 1961. But many of the timbers came from a cabin that was over on Quarter Place Trail. Quarter Place Trail being the hub of the African-American community here at Red Hill. And I say African-American because it encompassed both enslaved and free. And, it's possible and it's believed that uh, those timbers came from a cabin that was actually owned by Harrison, uh, the coachman. And uh, so that's, a, that's a, a special feature here at Red Hill. So visitors have an opportunity to see the, this cabin, which is near the historic uh, Henry House. Um, but then they have an opportunity to visit Quarter Place Trail and they can walk that trail, which is a, uh, it's a mile trail a half mile down, half mile up. Um, and when people are on the trail, they'll pass a reconstructed um, cabin. They'll, they'll pass uh, a couple of original foundations, foundations from original um, quarters that were, uh, that were used by enslaved folks here at Red Hill. Uh, They'll pass a tobacco barn that dates back to the 1850s, an ordering pit which is used as part of the process for preparing tobacco for shipment. Um, But uh, probably one of the most special places on the trail uh, and one of the most special places here at Red Hill is at the bottom of the trail. It kind of dead ends into the African American Cemetery. And that cemetery holds the remains of uh, at least 147. There are no, there, we know that there are 147 graves down there um, of people who, uh, who lived here at Red Hill, who worked here at Red Hill, and helped make Red Hill the successful plantation that it was. Um, they cover several gener- ge- uh, generations of African-Americans here at Red Hill. Um, unfortunately, we only know the name and have a date for one person out of those uh, 147. We know the names of about 40 that are down there. Um, and we're learning specific dates through, through records, through, um, through county records and things like that. We're learning as much as we can, and we're continually doing research trying to find out um, who everybody is down there? It would be beautiful if if we came up if we could ultimately create a list with 147 names on there, and know the dates of when they were when they were buried there at Red Hill. Um, but Matilda Pinnell is the only one that we know by name. She has a, a marker down there that is uh, that's engraved with her name and the and the date that she passed away, and. Um, she was married to Harry Pinnell. Harry Pinnell we talked about back in the, uh, in the Henry House. There's a picture of Harry Pinnell. He died in the 1950s and uh, his wife, Matilda, passed away in, uh, in, in the 1920s. Both of them, I believe, were born into slavery in John's time, um, but then, uh, then grew up, lived here, worked here. Um, she is buried here, to the best of my knowledge, he is not buried here. I believe he's buried at Mount Calvary um, in Brook One of the highlights here, one of the visual highlights, literally, here at, uh, at Red Hill is uh, something that towers over the nearby structures. It's in between the law office, the only original building to Patrick Henry's Red Hill, and the, the Henry House. Uh, What I'm talking about is, of course, the Osage orange tree. Um, It's over 65 feet tall. It has a branch breadth of over 85 feet, and it has a trunk circumference of uh, over 300 inches. Um, As I said, this tree towers over the, the nearby structures and this has been recognized many times as the largest Osage orange tree in uh, in the United States. Um, the, uh, the tree is named for the Osage Indian tribe, which is a tribe that uh, is uh, kind of found more over um, like in the uh, Missouri area, kind of out that direction. Um, the wood the tree itself is not necessarily indigenous to, to this part of Virginia. A lot of times when, tree, when Osage Orange is planted someplace, it's because it is planted. There's just a lot of not, not a lot of natural ones around here. The Osage Orange itself is basically a big seed pod. Um, by definition. By horticultural definition, it is a fruit because the seed is inside it, Um, but it's not a fruit like you think of when when you think of an apple or an orange or a banana or something like that. You don't want to eat this thing. Um, In the name of research, I took a bite and it's not pleasant. (laughs) Um, I did it for you. Uh, It's very sticky. It's, It's, again, it's just a big seed pod. Um, the wood was used by the Native Americans. Uh, it's a very strong wood, a very durable and, and somewhat pliable wood, so they would use it, they would carve it out and use it for bows. Um, when you look at the tree, um, you're going to understand that they probably didn't use, use it for making arrows because there's no straight branches on that thing. It's all twisted and all over the place. Um, but it is a fascinating tree. The tree itself uh, was over a hundred years old when Patrick Henry lived here at Red Hill. Uh, that tree stands out there and is estimated to be over 350 years old. Um, so it is very big and very old and uh, visitors um, I probably see people take pictures of that tree more than I see pictures taken of anything else here at Red Hill. Uh, it's definitely a, um, a centerpiece and a showpiece here at, at Patrick Henry's Red Hill. As we walk towards the law office, we're going to uh, see a couple of things. On our left, we're going to see some fig bushes, some fig trees. Well, they would be trees if they would, would not be cut down frequently. But with the weather here in, uh, in Virginia, sometimes frosts. Um, make it it necessary to to trim them down. But uh, the figs themselves, the fig trees themselves, the root system of these plants actually date back to the 1800s when uh, John and Elvira lived here at Red Hill. They still produce today and um, they uh, produce an enjoyable um, sweet fig that, uh, that sometimes I see people take one and eat one. I don't encourage it, but sometimes it happens. On the right side, on the east side of the walkway as we walk up, you'll see a herb garden. And the herb garden is kind of a representation of what an herb garden might have looked like here in Patrick's time. Um, herbs were very important, not only for cooking and for spicing food up, but also for um, medicinal purposes. The uh, the herbs were, um, used medicinally and they had to be used correctly you had to know what you were doing when you're working with the herbs and uh, no doubt dorothea was probably the the primary one who would have uh, been working with them and she would have chosen or she would have worked with her girls with her daughters on teaching them about the use of herbs because if you use the wrong part of an herb in the wrong way the results could be disastrous uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the enslaved community also was well aware of herbs and uh, their medicinal use as well. So, when we see an herb garden like that, uh, we might think of cooking, we might think of some medic- medicinal uses, and there's no doubt that uh, that was typical also in Patrick Henry's time here at Red Hill. You would use it for cooking, but also you would go to the herb garden because it was, in essence, your medicine chest. As we move, Farther down the path, we come to what is considered to be the only original building to Patrick Henry's Red Hill, and that is the law office. Um, When Patrick Henry purchased Red Hill in 1794, he still was practicing law. Um, When he moved here full-time with his family in 1796, he was pretty much done practicing law, but he still used the office to run the plantation, to uh, correspond with people like Washington and Governor Henry Lee um, as they were trying to talk him out of retirement uh, to enter back into public life. as a political figure, as an influential uh, political figure, because even towards the end of his life, Patrick Henry was one of the most sought after um, political figures. Everybody wanted him on their side um, because he had that much influence. Um, There was a time when George Washington made the comment about Patrick Henry that he had more influence over um, the Virginia Assembly He had more influence over the assembly than the king had over parliament. He said, all Patrick has to do is say, let it become law. And it becomes law. Um, So it's no wonder that people sought him and tried to get him to come out of retirement to to help influence our young nation. George Washington tried on several occasions to bring him out of retirement, offering him a vacant Senate seat, a position on the Supreme Court. Um, In 1796, Patrick Henry himself circulated a letter throughout Virginia saying, I'm starting to hear talk about being nominated for the presidency of the United States. That's something I don't want. And um, he still received votes, (laughs) even though he didn't run for the presidency. Um, so he was at the time of his death. He was still a major player, and so that's one of the things we want people to understand about Red Hill, about Patrick Henry. When they visit Red Hill, we want them to understand um, how influential he was. You know, here we are sitting in front of uh, this painting of Patrick Henry before the Virginia House of Burgesses. It was at this moment that Peter Rothamel, when when this picture. The subject of, of this picture is uh, Patrick Henry um, arguing the Stamp Act in front of the, uh, the the General Assembly, and Thomas Jefferson actually points to this moment as giving first impulse to the ball of the American Revolution. I mean, what that's saying is that Patrick Henry, that Thomas Jefferson is crediting Patrick Henry with starting the American Revolution of 11 years before we declared our independence. So there was a lot going on, and Patrick Henry was a major player in the the process that led up to our our independence. And so when you go into the law office, a lot was going on in there. Um, It's interpreted in two different ways when a visitor goes into the structure, into the building. the left hand side is more interpreted as office space. There are a couple of desks in there that belong to John Henry. Uh, there's some other period furniture in there as well. On the right hand side, um, in the second room, it's interpreted as sleeping quarters. Now, we don't know the way it was when Patrick Henry lived in that stru- or worked in that structure, um, but it wasn't unusual for, um, for visitors or over- overflow sleeping. Uh, to happen out in the uh, in, in an office in an outbuilding like that, so um, it's interpreted as his office and as the um, uh, as as living quarters as well, probably for the older children, the older Henry children. Now what's interesting is when the house burned in 1919, when Patrick's great granddaughter, Lucy Henry Harrison was living here, she ended up moving out into the law office and lived there for the last 25 years of her life. And so um, she never rebuilt the house, the Henry house, and it stayed basically a pile of rubble. Um, She moved her father's law office, his name was William Wirt Henry, uh, she moved his law office and attached it on the east end of Patrick's law office. So it was a little bit larger. She also added a second floor. But after she passed away and after the Patrick Henry Memorial Foundation purchased Red Hill and they were putting things back the way they were for, um, uh, for visitors back in the 1960s, um, it was relocated back to where it was or close to where it was when Patrick Henry lived here. William Wirtz section was removed and disassembled and, and taken away. The upstairs was taken down, the roof was lowered. So now visitors see a, um, a law office that's been pared down um, back to the way it was when Patrick Henry lived here and worked in that structure. And so it is kind of exciting when people come in there and they walk around. And uh, you know, it's not unusual to find people rubbing a wall or something like that saying, I wonder if Patrick Henry touched this? Nobody knows. Typically the last stop on a tour of Red Hill um, on the main historic grounds is uh, the Henry Family Cemetery. Um, Obviously, that is a very special place. There are several marked graves in there that represent uh, four generations of Henry's. Um, And uh, obviously, the ones that are typically focused upon the most are Patrick Henry and his second wife, Dorothea Dandridge. Um, People are oftentimes surprised that the grave is very simple. It's simply a, a marble, Um, covering, that a marble slab that uh, gives his name, his birthday, his death date, and then it says at the bottom, his fame, his best epitaph. Um, Family tradition holds that uh, it was in the uh, 1850s, so more than 50 years after Patrick uh, passed away. that there began to be talk amongst family members of moving Patrick, uh, moving his body over to St. John's Church, which is where he did the speech, give me liberty or give me death. Um, A lot of prominent Virginians are buried over there and some people thought that uh, perhaps that would be a better place uh, for him to be remembered. Um, John Henry was still living at the time and John Henry made the decision this is where Patrick Henry lived, this is where he died, and this is where he's gonna stay. And um, so it was in the 1850s that he permanently had Patrick Henry marked uh, with the grave that visitors see today. Um, He was marked in some fashion, we don't know how it was uh, at the time of his death in 1799 until this permanent stone was put in place. Um, or this permanent slab was put in place. Again, we don't know how it was marked, but we know that it was. And um, so we're confident that this is where Patrick Henry is. A common question that people ask, not just kids, but kids and adults, when they see the grave, um, the slabs are, are mounted on a stone foundation, which gives the appearance of being buried above ground but uh, the bodies of Patrick Henry and his family members are all deep underground. But that's one of the questions that I get a lot of times when, uh, when I'm with visitors uh, in the cemetery at Red Hill. But as I said, it's a very special place. Um, there are marked graves there, and there are unmarked graves. Um, there is a legend that people can refer to outside the cemetery that kind of gives them an indication of where the uh, unmarked graves are. We don't know anything about them. Uh, there's some ideas and some speculation, but we don't know anything for sure um, about who's buried where in these unmarked um, and. Um, basically covered up graves. So as people are walking around, it's not being disrespectful, but as people are walking around, they're gonna be walking on top of graves and there's nothing anybody can do to help that. But um, the Henry Family Cemetery at, uh, at Red Hill truly is a very special place. People often ask um, about tours and about school groups that come into um, Red Hill because Red Hill is dedicated to education. Um, they reach out to the schools, they work with the schools, they provide resources to the schools, but they also provide the opportunity for schools to come to Red Hill. And um, I can't give you a number on how many schools come to, uh, come to visit, um, but it's several <laughs> um, typically they're fourth graders when they come in from like the public schools um, because they come in and uh, and this helps with the sols so the standards of li- or standards of, of learning um, but uh, it's not uncommon for uh, in the summertime there might be day camps that, uh, that take a field trip to Red Hill, private schools coming to Red Hill. We had a school um, in, the, in the spring of, of um, 2022. Um, we had a, a, a private school from California that uh, was here just for a few days. They were gonna take in some sites in, uh, in Northern Virginia and over by Washington, but they made Red Hill one of their stops and um, it was wonderful meeting those folks and so it's great when when we see students when we see local students from um, uh, from area schools or private schools or schools or organizations coming from other places coming into red hill to learning more to learn more about patrick henry and to learn more about colonial life. Because one of the things that is oftentimes offered when they're doing group tours, um, and people need to call Red Hill to to verify this and to work this out, but one of the things that, that happens oftentimes is living history. And when we do living history, the hearth kitchen is operational. We have people in the kitchen making food and talking about life in the kitchen and what it was like. And let me tell you, you come in there on a, on a June day or a warm May day at the end of the school year or something like that, you can see how hot it gets in that kitchen. Um, and, and so kids have an opportunity and visitors have an opportunity when they're doing living history to experience the kitchen. Um, the blacksmith shop. The blacksmith shop is um, was rebuilt, it's, it's reconstructed and um, was a vital part of, of life here at Red Hill. Lots of utensils, lots of tools, lots of things were made right here in the blacksmith shop. We don't know for sure if it was Jesse, but it's, it's speculated that perhaps there was an enslaved guy by the name of Jesse. Well, there was an enslaved guy by the name of Jesse, but it's been speculated that he perhaps was the blacksmith. Um, or one of the blacksmiths. Um, we know that he, he held a, um, a very valuable, valuable position here at Red Hill um, as an enslaved individual. Um, but kids get the opportunity to go down there, feel the heat of the furnace um, as they billow, you know, as they operate the billows and, and heat up those coals and put the iron in there and bang out nails People have an opportunity to to help bang out the nails, um, and it's all done by people that are trained, uh, who uh, who know what they're doing down there in the blacksmith shop because it is a skilled position today, as in Henry's day. You kind of have to know what you're doing when you're working down there. Um, so, living history is something that's that's uh, that's very important. Um, that is offered here from Red Hill. And if people are interested in, um, in booking tours for their organizations or for school groups or camps or family reunions or anything like that, uh, please feel free to, to uh, you know, contact Red Hill. Look them up, redhill.org and it gives you all the contact information that, uh, that you can um, uh, contact them and find out how to be a part of the tour you